gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the death we obey in repentance, and the burial we obey through baptism. Now, remember at the very beginning of this uh, symposium, we talked about different paradigms, and that we were going to be getting out of the forensic paradigm and moving into the relational paradigm. Okay? And so <clears throat> the forensic paradigm is legalism. That's what the word forensic means, is legal. Um, and the relational paradigm is completely different. If you impose on a relationship mere legal paradigms, it creates great awkwardness. And likewise, if you assess a relationship, the health of a relationship, only by legal standards, you really know nothing about the relationship. But if we understand Jesus in John 17, that salvation is knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, then that's a relational paradigm. And what we've just been talking about is how we cannot co-govern our lives with God. We cannot have him on the throne and us on the throne with him, as the brother was just saying. And that's, that's what a lot of us try to do is some hybrid version. And we say, well, it's in my heart to follow God. Yes, that's, that's wonderful. That's what Romans 7 is talking about. But that condemnation that Romans 7 talks about is resolved in Romans 8, where he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and then he makes that clear, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so this relational paradigm is, relates to our interaction with God through the Spirit, through his word, and through his body. God has incarnated himself in the man Christ Jesus. But he is in heaven, and he ascended on high and gave gifts unto men. And now Christ is incarnating himself in a corporate body. And so everything we're going to talk about pertains to our relationship and position and interaction with Jesus, salvation is not some creedal checklist that we're ticking off. It is a relationship. Amen? And many have watered down baptism to the point where it is meaningless. And in their watering down, they violate Scripture. Scriptures like 1 Peter 3.21, like Mark 16.16, 16, like Acts 2.38. And they reduce it down that their version of baptism does not allow for an understanding of these scriptures that leaves them with any meaning. And what you will find in the, is the hallmark of a deteriorating paradigm is the multiplication of entities. Whenever false doctrine confronts a scripture that doesn't fit, they create a new category. And that's a sign that we have a failing paradigm, according to Occam's razor. So, just to put a couple scriptures out there, 
Um, first, let me just say that if, if we ask most uh, churches today, evangelical churches, uh, what is baptism? There is this pet answer that they will come back with where they say baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. And it's an act entirely of, con uh, it's inconsequential because it is an act of subsequence. It is not part of salvation. Of course, you have on the other side something that uh, is called baptismal regeneration by some and it amounts to making baptism some, some form of magic, where if we can just get them baptized, somehow they're going to be saved. Both of these are wrong because they divorce baptism from its relational relevance in our unfolding obedience and relationship with Christ, covenant with Christ. Amen? So in Mark 16, 16, Jesus says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, Jesus is clearly tying baptism to salvation. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And they will re-spin this scripture like they do all the scriptures. He who believes and is saved shall be baptized. But that's not what he says. He says, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Likewise, in Acts 2.38, when Peter says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. They say, well, he cannot mean that baptism is actually for the remission of sins because that would violate Paul. Paul tells us that it's not by works. Well, that's you taking your construct of what works is and what grace is that is derived outside of Scripture and superimposing it on Scripture. You're assuming that baptism is a human work rejected by Paul. But there's nothing that actually indicates that. In fact, in Colossians 2, 11, he says it is the working of God. He calls baptism the working of God. So there's, there are all these little categories that we have created after we have reduced salvation really to nothing. And, and baptism falls outside of those categories and becomes this, this inconsequential uh, subsequent event. In 1 Peter 3.21, Peter says, There is also an antitype which now saves you, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So again, we have this scripture, baptism now saves you. I mean, how are you going to get around that? Well, you're going to have to create a new entity, and you're going to have to say he's talking about another baptism. I remember uh, dialoguing with a dishonest uh, person once, and they were challenging me on, on a teaching that I had given on baptism. And at the beginning of the conversation, they started off by saying, you have to understand there are five baptisms. What? And then at the end they said, there are seven baptisms. Well, there's an example of the multiplication of entities. Because when I would present scriptures that would contradict their model, well, they would just create a new baptism. And a new one and a new one. Never mind, he says, there is one baptism. Amen. So... <laughs> 
we're going to try to view this topic through a different lens than this failed system that is prevalent in Christianity. Peter says baptism now saves you. Jesus says if you believe and are baptized, you will be saved. And Peter says if you repent and are baptized, you should repent and if you're baptized, it will be for the remission of your sins. So we want to figure out a model that harmonizes all of these scriptures and in doing so, hopefully discover uh, a revitalization of the truths of God. The church is not suffering from too much power right now. It's not suffering from too much fruit. We don't know what to do with it. So let's back off a little. It's in utter disrepair and dysfunction on every level. And if that is the case, it needs to re-examine everything it teaches, every, quote, fundament of its system, and discover where it got something wrong. And the answer may be almost everywhere. Thank you, Jesus. In Romans 6, Paul indicates that we participate in Christ's resurrection if we have been immersed into his death. Now, we know that Jesus paid the atoning sacrifice. That on Calvary, at Calvary, he satisfied the demands of justice and brought balance for all sufficient to cover all the sins of the world. In 1 John 2, he says, He himself is the propitiation of our sins and not of ours only, but those of the whole world. This is the satisfaction. He is the satisfaction. His costly sacrifice is of such value that it is sufficient to pay the debt of every human being that has ever lived. Amen? But we would agree that not every human being that has ever lived has received that payment and is living debtless before God. And so there, there is something that we are supposed to do. And some will say that that is simply to believe. Others will say it is to have a relationship with the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Others will emphasize that New Testament salvation language is relational and positional by nature. It speaks of being in Christ, as if Christ were a place. Amen? Because you can't be in a person as an individual. So he's speaking of it in corporal terms and in spiritual terms. So we have to be in his spirit and we have to be in his body. Amen? Let's just look at a couple scriptures relating to our position and our salvation based on our position in Christ. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Whoever believes in Him, in Him will have eternal life. John 3.15 I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So everything is impossible 
if we just get outside of Jesus. And we can get outside of him or else he wouldn't command us to abide in him. That would be a meaningless command if we could do nothing but abide in him. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given. Romans 3, we have been justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. If you want his wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, you need to discover and learn how to get in and remain in him. 1 Corinthians 15.22, in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So it is a space of Redemption. It is a space of sanctification. It is an atmosphere of righteousness and resurrection. It is a place where His Word is. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have, come new, have become new. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.28 We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. There is no completion outside of Christ. God is not indiscriminately tossing out salvation badges into the world. Well, here's this little individual over there. Let's toss him a salvation badge. And, oh, here's one over there. Let's give him a get-out-of-jail-free card. Just tell him what Jesus did and make sure he agrees with it. No, 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 no. There is only one man who is fully justified before God. One man who 1 Timothy 3.16 says is justified in the Spirit. One man who is called Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the ark. His body is the modern day ark. And our quest has got to be how do I get in and remain in Him? He is a life-giving Spirit. So part of how I remain in Him is by remaining in His Spirit. The first Adam became a living soul, but the second Adam became a life-giving Spirit. According to 2 Corinthians 3, now the Lord, a word most often used for Jesus, kairos, is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Amen? So we've got to get into His Spirit. But He's also a body. That spirit is in his body, has poured out the oil running down Aaron's head. How good and how blessed for brothers to dwell in unity, for there Yahweh commands a blessing. It is like the oil running down Aaron, his, covering over his whole body. So 
he says, He brought all things under subjection to His feet and gave Him to be head over all things through the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So if the church is the fullness of Him who fills all in all, then we cannot be in Him unless we are in the church. And the church is not a pile of stones gathered together, nor is it even a pile of people arranged on rows. It is lively stones composed at the Father's design. Isn't that what he says in 1 Corinthians 12? He has composed the body just as he wanted it to be. So if you have a body that doesn't have composition, what is the opposite of composition? You have death. Decomposition. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. If you have integrity, you have wholeness. What is the opposite of integrity? Disintegration. Amen. So this independence is antithetical to the life and therefore the salvation that we are supposed to have in Him. Everyone emphasizes the individual's rights. The individual's rights have condemned, condemned him to hell. It is an unjust, unfair thing that's, that a righteous man die in order to pay for our debts. And he accepted that unjust death on the cross. And so we only accept his saving atonement, his atoning sacrifice, if we renounce our rights. Our rights position us for hell and judgment. But by giving up our rights, we receive His unwarranted mercy and forgiveness. Amen? And so now, salvation is in Christ. Christ is incorporated in a people, a people that are composed, not decomposed. A composition describes a score of music, correct? Is that fair to say, Brother Josiah? So... You've got a, a concert coming up on Saturday. And would you feel okay if I went in there and pulled open your music book and just started scrambling the notes around the page at will? Um, because those are, that's a composition, but I feel like it lacks freedom. And, <laughs> and so could I just start moving? I, I can't read music, but it doesn't mean I can't destroy it. So <laughs> could I? Could I just start, you know, those, those little things with the round things on the top and whatever, those squigglies and, yeah, lines. Could I just kind of rearrange that to bring some freedom in Christ? Um, and, and would you be able to have a uh, successful music program, con conduct the orchestra properly and so on and so forth? <laughs> it would no longer be a composition, would it? So a church that is arranged by human design... Well, it's not arranged at all. A grouping of people haphazardly tossed together like a salad in a bowl in the, under the name of Christ is not a church. Amen. It's supposed to be a temple. It's supposed to be a body fitly framed together by what every joint and ligament supplies. There is an interworking. There is an interdependence. There is an order. And this order and this composition describes how individuals 
connect with and relate to each other. So if Satan wants to kill the body of Christ, what would he do? He would destroy its order. He would make us hate fatherhood. He would destroy and scramble the relationship between husbands and wives, parents and children, disciples and elders, and every connection in the body, he would invert it, he would rearrange it, and he would do it all in the name of freedom and independence. And we would be left with a dissected, disembodied corpse celebrating it as the body of Christ. Well, that's what he's done. But in order to be in Christ, we need to be in the living body, the body that God has composed according to His design. And that body is not a body unless it has the Holy Spirit giving it life. We love to quote James when he says, faith without works is dead, but how does he say that? He says, just as the body without the Spirit is dead. So faith without works is dead. So if we have a body that doesn't have the Spirit, no, that's not a body. That's a corpse. Amen. The corpse of Christ, I don't want to belong to the corpse of Christ. I want to belong to the body of Christ. I want to belong to that, that fitly framed people that He is building that have the Holy Spirit where the Spirit is dwelling therein. So there are scriptures that clearly tell us that baptism pertains to salvation. And yet, we started by saying salvation was a relationship with God. Baptism is the covenant vow that binds us to the relationship that saves us. Baptism is the covenant vow that binds us to the relationship that saves us. The Entirety of the relationship is not fulfilled in the event of baptism. So we cannot say we are saved by baptism apart from relationship. And in that sense, we would take issue with some who call their, their uh, doctrine baptismal regeneration. Baptism is part and parcel of salvation in that it creates and protects the context for the saving relationship. When someone goes to the marriage altar, what would the wife feel, a Christian wife feel, if the husband says, Honey, you know I love you, but I feel like our love is complete outside of a wedding. I don't feel like we need to have this legalism of a wedding to prove our love. Well, I suppose that's being said more and more in the world. But do we agree with that in the church? No, because we agree with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said from now on, it is not your love that will sustain your marriage, but your marriage that will sustain your love. So God does not disseminate His Spirit, His love, His glory, His presence, His Word indiscriminately. He gives Himself in the context covenant. In the same manner, He is betrothing us as a bride to Christ. And He's going to give us this salvation relationship in the context of covenant. 
For God to give Himself outside of covenant would make Him what? An adulterer. But He is a jealous God, it says. And He gives Himself to His bride. He gives Himself in the context of covenant. Baptism is the covenant. Jesus in Matthew 28, excuse me, Matthew 26, 28, at the Last Supper, Jesus took the cup of wine and He held it up and He said, This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for the remission of sins. That is the exact same phraseology Peter used when he said, Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Theologians have made pretzels of their brains trying to get around how ice, how for, means something other than for. But it is the exact same word he's using in Mark, I mean in uh, Matthew 26. He says the blood is for the remission of sins. We cannot dispute that the blood is for the remission of sins. So why would we dispute the exact same configuration of words when he says be baptized for the remission of sins? Why should we not infer that this saving, atoning sacrifice is given in the context of covenant and baptism is how we enter that covenant? That does not make it of works of man. That makes it relational. Do you follow me? How do we place our old man under the atoning uh, uh, the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Paul could not be more clear in Romans 6. As many of us as have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His... That's when we put our old self under His cross. On the cross, He received in His body the just penalty of our sins. He received the judgment of hell that was due us. In, in short, in baptism, we place ourselves under that atoning sacrifice. We judge ourselves now. We preempt judgment and we say, we have died in repentance to the reign of this old man. Now we're burying him under the cross of Christ. And he says in Romans 6, we are united with him through death. Speaking of his sacrifice. So His sacrifice is sufficient for all people, but how do I become united with it? Well, somebody say, well, I thought it was by faith. It is. It is by faith. So get baptized by faith. Isn't that what He tells Peter in Acts 16? Would you mind looking that up? 29? Excuse me, isn't that what Paul tells the jailer? Not what he tells Peter. Do I have that right, Brother Daniel? That's a little bit about the, yes. the, the what's his name, the the jailer. Yes. So they said he asked, "What must I do to be saved?" And they said, "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household." Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. Because you can't believe, you can't have faith except by hearing. Amen. And hearing by the word of God. 
What must we do? Well, you're going to have to believe. So let's start speaking the word that you can believe. Okay. And to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Well, keep reading. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So he says, believe on the Lord Jesus. Now let's speak the word that you're going to believe. They heard the word. They received it. They were baptized. They went back into the house, having believed on the Lord Jesus. So those who would try to make a dichotomy between faith and something like baptism do so dishonestly. Now, we're not saying that you can be baptized and it not pertain to a relationship and somehow that baptism save you. Some have propagated what my dad has called creedal sacramentalism, where they teach you to simply go through the motions and those, those, they don't really pertain to a saving relationship. So that's like a marriage of convenience, right? You, everybody know what a marriage of convenience is? If you're a foreigner in another country and you want to become an American citizen, you go through the legal motions of marriage, though you do not love this person, though you do not plan to spend your life with this person, though you're not really covenanting with this person, you nonetheless get a marriage license and go through the legal motions in order to represent legally that you are married, even though relationally you have no such designs. Now that's not saving if we use that for, for the Lord. That's called fraud. So those who go to baptism in order to get their God duty done with are just like those who say the sinner's prayer in order to do the same. It's fraud. It does not, it is not a relationship. But the relationship is what saves us. And the relationship is realized in the context of a covenant. And that covenant and the old covenant was circumcision. In Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, we see the unfolding of the Lord's covenant. The Lord asks Abraham to lay a sacrifice. And he brings the calf and the goat and the dove and the pigeon and so on and so forth. And he splits them all and he lays them out. And in a traditional covenant, the greater king would require the, the lesser king, the vassal king, to pass through the slain halves of this covenant, of these animals. They called it the cutting of the covenant. But in this instance, the Lord was not wanting to be like all the other gods or all the other polities of the world. He wanted to show Abraham that he didn't just want submission. He wanted trust. He wanted faith. He wanted Abraham to believe in the character of the God who was leading him. And so in this instance, God the great king appeared in the, like, a, like a flaming torch and he passed through that, the, that aisle of judgment. And this was symbolic of the time when Jesus would come and pass through that, that aisle of judgment, that terrible, that terrible passionate uh, sacrifice at Calvary. Amen. And then he tells Abraham what his duty is to be part of the covenant. He invokes Abraham's trust 
through this calling on himself the judgments of the slain animals if he breaks it. And then he says to Abraham, here's what you must do. Walk before me and be blameless and let every man among you be circumcised. So he says, every male among you must be circumcised. Whoever is not circumcised has broken my covenant. He shall be put out of his people. Amen. And then in Colossians, we're told, Paul says, that we're, we're told, Colossians 2.10, he says that baptism is for the new covenant what circumcision was for the old. Amen. But it is a, it is a circumcision made without hands through faith in God who raised Jesus from the dead. Amen. So if it's a circumcision made without hands, don't tell us that it's works and therefore can't be part of salvation. If it is works, it is God's work. It is where God says, this is how you enter this covenant. Now, in, 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 if, in 1 Peter 3.21, he tells them, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but the eperitimo, the pledge or the answer of a good conscience. This word, eperitimo, was a legal term often used in court, where solemn answers would be given to solemn questions. Amen. The NIV translates it as a pledge of a good conscience. Luther translated it as the covenant. That's how he translated that word. Our English word answer literally, the, the uh, etymology shows that it started all out as and swear means to give a solemn answer, a binding solemn answer, as when one is put under oath. <laughs> Amen. So somehow baptism is our answer to God, our solemn answer to solemn questions of who is the Lord of our life. And as a wife stands at the altar, as a bride stands at the altar and receives solemn questions, and answers them affirmatively and walks away with her name changed. So at baptism, we are asked the solemn question of who is the Lord of our life? Have we died to the old sin master? Have we buried him? And are we now ready to bury him in the waters of baptism? Now Peter says, in the days of Noah, eight souls were brought safely through water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Now when we think of Noah's flood, we don't automatically think salvation. We actually first think judgment, don't we? But Peter says that Noah's flood was an antitype. It was a mere example of what happens with the believer at baptism. So at the flood, all of the unrighteousness, all of the rebellion... All of the rejection of God's authority and lordship was drowned. Amen. And the same waters that submerged and judged the ungodly lifted and buoyed up the ark above that judgment. Likewise, in the crossing of the Red Sea, in 1 Corinthians 10, he says that, that the Children of Israel were baptized into Moses 
And how were they baptized into Moses? Well, he says they're baptized into Moses because what he's going to describe came by the authority, the lordship, if you will, of Moses. But he says they were baptized into Moses through the cloud and through the sea. And he's likening that to our baptism into Christ. Our baptism into Christ is also twofold, isn't it? One baptism, but it's twofold. We're baptized by the Spirit. Our spirit is immersed into the cloud when we surrender completely. Amen. And we receive that power from on high. We are clothed with power from on high. Amen. Evidenced by that glossolalia that we were speaking of last night. But we are baptized in the sea and in water. And the same waters brought judgment on the gods of Egypt. They also separated the children of Israel from the temptation to ever go back. The Lord said to Moses, Do not lead the children of Israel on the direct path through the land of the Philistines, but take them in a circuitous route to the Red Sea. What that means is when they were about to leave Egypt, there was a real short little jaunt right through the Philistines, and they could have just been out of there in no time. And the Lord said, Nope, no, I, I, that's not how I want you to do this. I want you to, take, I want you to go out of your way to get to this impossibility called the Red Sea. And then they got there and they were terrified because they see Pharaoh's army hounding after them. And you have to wonder what the children of Israel were thinking in this first little obedience to Moses. Wow, thank you. You went out of your way to back us up against the Red Sea and now Pharaoh's army is coming. But here's where the cloud appeared for the first time. And it came and it went behind them. And on the side facing the children of Israel, it was brightness and day. And on the side facing the Egyptians, it was blackness and night. Amen. And that cloud of God's presence pushed them and held them at that decision of trust. That act of faith whereby they would walk through those piled up waters of the Red Sea. Amen. God took them to the Red Sea because He wanted a barrier. An open grave. An open watery grave to be between them and Egypt when they faced their first battles and were tempted to go back. When they came up on the other side, the waters closed down and Pharaoh and his army were drowned. All of the mechanics, all of the, the ingenuity of sin came apart. <laughs> Amen. And drowned in the bottom of that sea. And what did Moses tell him that day? The Egyptians which you see this day, you will see no more forever. That's what baptism is supposed to be for us. The same waters which represent the burial of our old dethroned carnal nature. They're supposed to bring judgment, preemptive judgment on our sins so that we don't have to dread the judgment of eternity. Amen. We're putting it under the cross and those same waters are lifting our new man up to a freedom of life in Jesus, life of obedience as demonstrated through the ark. Do you see the same waters saving and judging? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. The cross was not a blessing. It was not something 
to hang around one's neck. It was a curse. Galatians 3 says, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And literally that's condemned or damned is everyone who hangs upon a tree. The condemnation that we were supposed to suffer in hell, Jesus absorbed in his body. Amen? But Paul says we put our old man under that condemnation when we are united with him through death. Now if we take our old man and we say, Lord, we're putting our old nature, our old lordship under the cross of Christ, then we're calling the judgment, the preemptive judgment of God down upon our old man. And we're making a separation with him because we want to be lifted up even as he is drowned forever. If we take that old man out of that judgment and we live that life of self again with, with the flesh as the Lord, then we are living a life in a man who we call a curse down upon. The curse that comes upon everyone who hangs upon a tree. So we should not enter this covenant until we know it's forever. Until we know we are immersing our old repented corpse nature forever and ever under the judgment of the cross to keep him there. Doesn't mean we're never going to make mistakes, but it means we're never going to be entangled and overcome. Amen? Jesus is the Lord of our lives. And that's the question that we are answering at baptism. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, God. Thank you, Lord. See, I haven't looked at my notes, but I'm flipping through them now to make sure I've covered everything. Amen. Baptism immerses us into Christ, into Christ's death, while the Holy Spirit immerses us into Christ's life. We're all baptized by one spirit into one body. That describes the church. But through baptism, we're immersed into his death. Baptism does not save us simply by going through the ritual and then not living the life. It just adds to our condemnation, if that's going to be our route. It saves us if it pertains to and relates to our vital relationship with Jesus through the Spirit, through the Word, in the context of His body. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, I am going to, I am going to just give a pause right here and ask, see if there are any questions before we get a little bit more into identity. I want to get into the name and identity see if there are any questions that anybody has right here and now. Amen. If we are baptized into Jesus, then we are losing our identity. He said in Matthew 28, 19, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He did not say names because he didn't give names there. He knew that they knew which name he was referring to. That the Son would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Amen.
And so the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is the name of Jesus Christ. If we see ourselves as condemned outside of Christ and we see salvation as only in Christ, then we have got to lose everything that makes us us and become everything that makes Him Him. Amen? We have got to lose our name. We have got to lose our identity. We have got to lose our spirit of pride and rebellion and receive His Spirit. We've got to receive His character. We've got to receive everything about Him in a real sense. And baptism is when that happens. In Revelations 3 it says, Those who do not receive the mark of the beast, He will write on them a new name. The name of my God and the name of the city of my God. That's one name. But it's the new Jerusalem, which we're told is the church in Hebrews 12, coming down out of heaven. The name of my God and the name of the city of my God is the same name. Because the city is the body of Christ, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So in, in, in Jeremiah, is it 23? Yes, and 33. We see these two parallels. In 23, he depicts the coming of Messiah. And he says, in that day, Yahweh will be king. And he says, he says, uh, he will establish righteousness. Does somebody, does somebody have that? Let's pull that up. Jeremiah 23, I want to say 16, and also 33. I can't remember the verse there. Uh, Yahweh Tzakainu is what I'm looking for. Go ahead. Um, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I'll raise to David a branch of righteousness. I will raise to David? Is that what you said? Is that what you, did you yeah. say to David? Right. Okay. I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Who is it talking about here, brothers? Jesus. Who is David's branch of righteousness? It's Jesus. Okay. So the days are coming. Go ahead. That I'll raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. So in, listen to that language. I will raise a branch for David. Israel will dwell securely, and Judah will be saved. Will be saved his and his name will be called, his name will be called Yahweh Tzikainu. The Lord our righteousness. Now listen to the parallel in Jeremiah 33, 10 chapters later. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform the good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called the Lord our righteousness. Yahweh Tzakainu. So here he prophesies the Messiah. And he says his name will be Yahweh our righteousness. And here he prophesies the Messiah incorporated, incorporated in his body and says she, Jerusalem, will be called Yahweh Tzakainu. So he says I will write on them a new name, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem descending from the Lord. Amen? So there is no oneness with Christ that is outside of oneness with His body. 
So we have to be called by that name. That name is the name of Jesus. You shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. When Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Remission of sins corresponds to removal of identity. Your sins are remitted in that you, as an independent, Christless agent, ceases to be and your life is hidden and plunged, immersed into this body of Christ, into this Jesus, and you take on His name. Every single time they baptized in the New Testament, they did it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not evoke titles like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They used the proper name, the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess. The name that Paul, I mean, that Peter spoke of when he said to the Sanhedrin, there is salvation Listen to this, in no one else. Do you hear the positional terms there? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby we must be saved. In Acts 8, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. In Acts 10, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In Acts uh, 16, He said, Arise and get thyself immersed and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord, showing that they actually called out His name at the baptism. In Acts 19, He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Whatever is done in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the Spirit of our God and in the name of the Lord. Amen. What does he say? Is it Timothy? I'm, 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 it's missing, I'm missing it. Just regeneration through. No, I'm, I'm missing. Is it, is it Titus? Titus 3.5. Somebody want to read that? I was going to say 1 Timothy 3.16, but it's Titus 3.5. Thank you. According to his mercy... He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Is that what we're looking for? Yes. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So baptism takes us to the altar. Repentance crucifies the old Lord, and baptism is the burial. Amen. When you're conducting a funeral... They put headings in the text to tell you which part you're at. And one part is called the committal. And that's the part where you lower the body into the grave. Amen. And it's the most heart-rending part for everybody because you see what's being lost. And you're reckoning with, with the loss of this contact with the person. And that sense of committal is what baptism is. It's a vow. It's a pledge. It's an answer. It's a committal of our old man into the cross of Christ. You say, well, Lord, if it's a commitment, can't we just make it with our mouths? Well, we do make it with our mouths, but it's a demonstrative vow. It's a vow where our actions, our behavior is demonstrating what our mouth has claimed 
It's a vow where we're signifying and signaling what we're doing. Some would say, oh, it's just symbolism. No, it's not just symbolism. It's signaling. Go to a traffic light and say, oh, it's just a signal. And try busting through it. Amen. It's significant. All of these share the same root. Signal, sign, significant. So it is a sign. But it is a sign that enacts the very thing it's signaling. It enacts the covenant. You say, well, can somebody be saved prior to baptism? Well, yes. God will impute it to them if they're walking by faith. But that, relation, that relationship, that saving relationship has not been consummated until they have entered the marriage vow at baptism. If they die in faith not having received what was promised but seen it afar and welcomed it, then perhaps they gain a good testimony through their faith. And he credits, he imputes to them what is yet lacking. But that doesn't show how insignificant it is. It shows how significant it is that God must impute it until it be imparted. Amen. Whoever has, is not circumcised has broken my covenant. Let him be put out from his people. If you're unwilling to enter that covenant whereby you commit your old man under the judgment cross of, of Christ, then you have broken his covenant. Somebody says, well, once I'm baptized, can I be lost? Yes, of course you can. Just like you can stand at the altar and say, I do, but live your life like I don't. Baptism doesn't save you except in as much as it pertains to and relates to the relationship that saves you. It is the covenant vow creating the context to preserve the saving relationship. But if you don't live out that commitment, all you did was commit a fraud. And that identity that you want to belong to you, the identity of Christ, it doesn't belong to you if you're committing identity theft. Amen. You've got to live it. You've got to walk in it. You've got to be able to say with, with Paul, in a legitimate sense, for me to live is Christ and to die is truly gain. You can't take out your old man and start living under his lordship again without incurring the condemnation that you called down on that man. When you put him under the cross, the curse of the cross of Christ. Amen. So baptism is part of our salvation. Not as an incident or a magic act. But the power of baptism is in the honor and the awe that you feel in your heart when you stand at that altar and you make a decision you can never again break without incurring great condemnation. And you say, Jesus is the Lord of my life. Amen. It's something that must be taken with great consideration and deliberation. It is not something to be entered into lightly. Oftentimes in, in the context of this fellowship, it will be a, a, a good while of consideration before we will baptize someone. That preparation time may be years, just as engagements take, take a long time sometimes until they come to that place where God has convicted them. Amen. And they have crucified the flesh. We do, not, we do not put the flesh to death by drowning him. He is put to death through repentance, impaling oneself on the sword of truth, which is the word of God, 
and he is buried and committed to stay dead in the waters of baptism. Amen? Very small, simple uh, confirmation, you know, in talking about obeying the gospel. Hebrews 4 and 2 says, and they had the gospel, speaking of people in the Old Testament, preached to them just as unto us. We, we think of the gospel as purely New Testament. But they saw what this three-step process of repentance, burial, and, and, and entering into the resurrecting power. They put the blood on the doorpost. They then were baptized in the Red Sea. Then they were baptized in the cloud. When the tabernacle was set up, they had the altar first. Then they had the laver of water. Then they had the holiest of holies. When the temple was set up, and, and God said, you do it, you make sure you do it just this way because I am foreshadowing the, uh, the, the real exodus that's going to come when my spirit invades. And so when the temple was built, they had an altar. They had a laver of water. They had the presence of God. The gospel has been the same all along. It's just now we see the fullness of it, and we see the real exodus that's coming. Amen. Amen. Jesus. Amen. Yes, ma'am. Can, can you turn on this mic, please? Thank you, Bonnie. reference to something you said yesterday, but also in several scriptures like um, Acts 10, where it says Cornelius's family, you know, his whole, well, says his whole household was baptized that day. And, and there's another uh, scripture where it talks about a whole household being baptized. And you mentioned yesterday that, that your, your son was burning and that he, you know, felt the presence of the Lord, and, but he's not yet ready for baptism. So what is that and, and as far as our household, what yes, is that time of baptism? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. That's a great question. So um, Jesus says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. So that entails that we must be able to believe. And it says, uh, Philip says to the Ethiopian, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. So both of these would indicate that infant baptism is certainly out of the equation. Um, obviously, also, you would never baptize an infant by immersion, and there is no baptism that is not immersion. So <clears throat> for us, if baptism is subsequent to repentance and is the burial of the sin nature once repented of, then that necessitates that an individual must be old enough to have already come to some burgeoning of the sin nature and some awareness of the sin nature because he cannot yet die to that which has not even fully been materialized in his life. My son is innocent before God because he does not yet have that sin nature ruling his life. He, he, Jesus took the little children and he said, the kingdom of, of heaven belongs to those like these. So little children are okay before God because 
they do not have that sin nature that has reached the point of usurping God's lordship. And that we would see that we do, we do not baptize someone who, who has not yet had that self-awareness, that sin nature come into its own, and then after that, consciously, knowingly repenting and dethroning that, and then they can commit it in baptism. So very young children may have powerful experiences with God, but they're not in need of regeneration until their sin nature has, has, has come into its fullness, and now they need that regeneration for salvation. Prior to that, they're acceptable to God because of their ignorance as such, their innocence. I'm just thinking how he says there, unless you become like one of these little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom, indicating that there's some kind of uh, progressing back to that place of childlike trust. There's something we have to overcome. A child doesn't need to become like a child. They already are like a child. But something happens. I don't know if you all have noticed this, but something happens in your teen years. That's a little. <laughs> has anybody noticed that? Okay. There's something that happens when an awareness your, your, of yourself and your pride and your ego and your, your burgeoning desires of all types awaken. And it's that that has to be put to death, you know. And I, I think with all of the, with all of the language and, and parallels drawn in the Scripture between baptism and marriage, it's maybe helpful to consider, would you marry somebody when they're six years old? I mean, your six-year-old can be as sincere as can be, that they really want to marry the neighbor girl, and they're ready to do it. You know, it's going to be fun. Uh, but when you see them, you, you say, well, you don't yet have the capacity to understand the responsibility that this entails. So if you were to go have your little ceremony in the backyard, they're, they're not going to remember the next day that they did it. You know, they don't. They don't know really what's at stake, what it's going to cost, what it really means. And so if we're not going to give them a driver's license and we're not going to let them get married, how could we uh, presume that they would be even capable yet of making this most important lifelong commitment that anybody could ever make? Amen. Also, I think household isn't specifically meaningful just him and his children. You know, Cornelius gathered together all his friends, it says, along with his family. And then it says that he, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. They all received the Spirit. But then Peter says in 11, when recounting it all, he says, I will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. I think he's, it's, he had servants, right. he had all sorts. It wasn't indicating all the little kids. It's everybody that was involved and under his covering. Amen. Isn't it wonderful that we can all be in the household of God? Amen. Amen.